I think this whole pandemic and this whole closure has made me really appreciate every part that not only what our team does, but what the customers and fan base really provide for Maymay as well. We're really excited to reopen and if we can come out of this stronger, then let's bring it on. That's Elizabeth Haig, founder and chef of the London-based restaurant Maymay. Maymay, like all restaurants around the world, was forced to close during the pandemic. We caught up with Elizabeth on our Courier Daily podcast a few months ago to see as she was pivoting the company to survive. But now, things are looking a hell of a lot brighter. On the Courier Weekly today, we talk reopenings and fresh starts. We're flipping the pages of the latest issue of the magazine to talk with some of the writers and photographers that made it happen. And we're digging ever deeper into the rise of Black-owned businesses. I'm Daniel Giacopelli, and this is the new podcast from Courier. We're kicking off this week's show with Kalia Ismain, who launched her company Jammy, a discount card to use at UK-based Black-owned businesses, years before Black Squares started popping up in your Instagram feed. Jammy gives cardholders discounts at Black-owned brands, from beauty to food and drink, and business is booming. Website traffic's up 2,000%, she says, and there's been a big increase in cardholders from non-Black communities as well. Well, I caught up with Kalia to find out what's been going on. It's been crazy. Like, it's been, like, from a Jammy perspective, phenomenal. Like, the sheer level of support we've had. Our website traffic has gone up, like, 2,000%. We've had, like, so many thousands of people coming on. Our cardholder usage, so for the Jammy card, you get discounts of up to 40% at all of the Black-owned businesses that we work with for a year. It's shot up, and specifically with non-Black communities, which is incredible. And what we're seeing as well is people are buying the card and then going on to make their first, second, third purchases, like, straight away. It's not just something which they're buying the card and they're like, oh, great, okay, I'm going to use it at some point. Like, they're then using it automatically. Our newsletter subscribers have gone up, Instagram followers have gone up, Twitter followers, all of that has gone up. So many of our partners have been messaging us as well to say that they've literally sold out of stock, like they have nothing left. One of our partners literally was like, all I have is uh, virtual lampshade classes, that's all I can sell at this moment in time, like I have no stock which is really, really exciting. I mean, it's something which when I first started Jammy, like this was the dream that we'd be able to facilitate this like really easy access to black owned businesses and people would just be shopping like they shop anywhere else. I mean, that's kind of what everything that I do with, with Jammy is that how can we make it so that shopping with community owned brands is just as easy as shopping with like Tesco, Boots, Starbucks, like the level of convenience is there because... I've always been very optimistic that people want to shop. They want to make their money go further. They want to be conscious consumers. It's just about making it as really as easy as possible. And the last few weeks have shown that. When people really realise why it's so important, when it's really brought to the fore, they're more than willing. Yeah, and you did a really great post on social the other day about, you know, the five reasons why people should shop with Black-owned businesses. That really got to the heart of it. Could you walk us through those five reasons? Because I feel like a lot of people they think this is just a kind of like an activisty kind of thing to do, like a gut reaction. But actually, there's sound business reasons, both for the businesses and the communities, why this actually makes sense. What was the first one in that list? So the first one was because Black-owned businesses strengthen local and Black communities. So like when you buy from 
any business. You're not just purchasing a product, you're investing in that business, in their ethos and everything they do. And when you're buying from a black owned business, you're supporting the wider community because they are much more likely to invest in projects, in initiatives that support the community. They're much more likely to be hiring black employees, paying them fair wages and supporting therefore families, black families and other business owners as well. And not only that, they are also more likely to use black suppliers and it's much more likely that an ecosystem will start to spring up which centres black business owners, which kind of starts to tear down some of the structural inequalities that we've got, like black lenders. It's well known that when it comes to access to funding, like through banks and through investors and stuff, black entrepreneurs are much, much more likely to be declined or just not even get through the door pretty much. And so having access to lenders. Yeah, in the US, there's the whole kind of redlining thing where, you know, for decades, people have been unable to get loans because the bank manager thinks that they're in a crappy, underdeveloped community. And it's just this decades long kind of like domino effect, I guess. We're at the point now where people aren't even applying anymore. (laughs) They're kind of bypassing the banks completely and not even really bothering with investors because of how much they just get ignored. Not even, sometimes not even declined, just ignored. And we're talking about here actual small businesses like on the high street, not, you know, biotech companies trying to get like VC money from Silicon Valley. This is like, I want to start a shop. I'm going to the bank to get, you know, 20,000 pounds. Yeah, like this is like barber shops, mum and pop shops, food shops. People aren't interested. I think for a long time it was because people didn't think that any business that served the black community would make money because there was this whole sense that black people don't spend money, which is crazy when you see like the strength of the black pound and the black dollar is huge. And then there was just like a lack of trust. There was just assuming there were going to be problems and, and not willing to work with them on interest rates or anything like that. And there also is kind of just like a lack of financial education sometimes as well so not kind of realizing that okay right if I get this credit card and pay this off I can build my school here and etc etc so there's yeah a number of different reasons why that was one of the reasons the other reason was it means more jobs as I mentioned like black businesses are much more likely to hire from the community which counteracts a lot of the issues which are faced by black people when hiring when applying for jobs and then when also just being in work I don't know if you've seen over the last few days, there's been so many like Instagram accounts and Twitter accounts talking about the microaggressions that black people face in work. I think there's by nine to five accounts like this talking about like just difficulties. Like once you've got the job, like the problems don't end there. And it also means importantly, like holding other companies accountable. Like a couple of weeks ago, we saw so many businesses posting their black squares, you know, standing in solidarity. But what are they going to be doing two, three months down the line next year, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, you just know in a few weeks, tons of brands are going to be going back to business as usual, right? Yeah, literally, like, it was just a case of like, everyone else is posting a black square, so let's rush something out too, which is just like, that's not going to do anything. And as consumers, we have a responsibility to hold these businesses to account. Do you think that small business owners have a really unique role to play in changing a lot of the systemic problems that, you know, black people face right now? more so than coming top down from the government? That's a really interesting question. I would say that they have a really important position, but it's not the only thing that needs to happen to see true change. It's a really, really important pillar because of the economic wealth that will be generated, because of how quickly that can also be distributed to the community when it comes through businesses. But it's definitely not the only thing. Like It has to go hand in hand because the black community isn't going to tear down 
the structural racism and everything that's happening simply through the wealth of black individuals. It has to be distributed. It also comes from things like the, I don't know if you've seen the petitions to kind of reassess how we're educated in schools so we can learn about black history and start to understand other aspects of what's going on as well and the Race and Equalities Commission. So I believe strongly that there's not just one way to solve this. There's multiple things that need to happen. Because some people say money talks. You don't have to necessarily change the mind of a racist because they'll probably always be racist. But what you can do is have them begrudgingly respect you as a successful business owner, right? Sort of like the best revenge is success. Or is that wildly off base? If I'm honest with you, I think if we were having this conversation a few months ago, I'd just be like, yeah, all we need is more success. That's all we need. But the last few weeks have really shown me, because like, even if we look at Atlanta, we look at what's happening in Atlanta, that is probably one of the most economically successful places in the world when it comes to, to black people. And they are still having huge problems with police brutality. Even in the middle of riots, black men and women are still being killed. And I think that just goes to show that it's not just about economic wealth. It's not just about politicians. It has to go much deeper, really into the roots of society for us to really see change. How do you make sure that this translates into real change in consumer buying patterns? You know, like we said earlier, not just for the next two months, people say, yeah, let's rally around black owned businesses and buy from them. But then it's just back to the status quo after that. I actually do think that is responsibility of people like me with Jamie. Now we've got your attention. Now all I'm thinking is that how do we harness this? How do we ensure that next month, Christmas, next year, we're still making it as easy as possible for you and we're meeting you where you are? Because for me it's become clear that people are willing to do it when the conditions are right. People are more than willing, the last few weeks have shown. So it's now the responsibility of platforms like ours to kind of find those people, seek them out, continue to re-engage them, remind them why it's so important and make sure that it happens. In 2020, I think we are so much more conscious with our buying than ever before. There's been a huge rise in like sustainable brands. If you don't have a purpose nowadays, like it's really difficult for you to kind of like get anywhere. And I think we realise the responsibility and the opportunity that we have to shape the world that we want to live in. And it's just up to businesses and platforms like myself to kind of like really harness that energy and, and make sure that it's it's used. Do you think some of the brands in your platform or Black-owned businesses in general, do you think they mind being, not pigeonholed, but being just defined as a quote-unquote Black-owned business rather than, you know, an awesome shop, for instance, that sells clothes that just so happens to be owned by a Black person, if you know what I mean? I think they're all very proud to be Black-owned businesses, but I don't think any of them would say that that's the be-all and end-all of where we are. All of them create phenomenal things. The quality of their products is so high. Whatever industry that they're in, hair care, arts, greasing cards, whatever it might be. I see what you mean in terms of like, are people just buying from them right now because they're black owned and not because of the quality of their work? Yeah, I guess, you know, if you're if you're a black business owner and you have like the coolest sustainable beauty brand ever, everybody's buying it. But yeah, you're still defined as just a black owned beauty brand. It's kind of it's almost like a female founder, that terminology, rather than just a founder, if you know what I mean. I see what you mean. I think it's an interesting one, because when I first started, I actually got most apprehension from black business owners who didn't want to be known as black business owners. 
Whereas now, and it's not just because of the last few weeks, like there has definitely been more of a change towards people kind of being like, I am a black business owner and I'm really proud of that fact. And, you know, some businesses will kind of put it all over their branding. They'll make it, you know, a massive part of their story. Others will be like, I'm not hiding it, but I don't feel like I need to kind of put it at the forefront. But I think there is like people are much more willing to kind of put that up and, and make it clear. I think a few years ago, people were actively hiding it which is a real shame, but it was because it came down to kind of what they thought customers would think of them and, and how their brand might be perceived. Whereas like nowadays, it's just it's a little bit different. It's like, no, this is who I am. Like, take it or leave it. This is how my business is, which is incredible. Kalia Ismain there from Jami. We're heading to Dallas now to catch up with Kellen Daniel. He's one of the managers of the Dallas location of Sneaker Politics, a really cool Louisiana-based sneaker boutique launched back in 2006. They've got locations across the south of the U.S., but the Dallas locations where Kellen works, and it's the newest. It opened in September last year. But like most cities in the U.S., there were tons of protests in Dallas not long ago. And a few weeks ago, Kellen's shop was actually one of the unfortunate ones to get looted. I wanted to know how we felt about it as both a shop manager and a supporter of the Black Lives Matter movement. Here's Kellen. I got a text from a friend of mine who was out at the protest saying that they had just looted, they just broke the glass in the store and they had gotten into our store and and started taking things and running out. Me and the other manager, uh, his name's Ryan Jones, we got dressed and got out here as fast as we could. By then it was too late, which is crazy because we only live five minutes from the store. So between the time that I got the call to the time of us actually getting out here, I mean, everything was pretty much gone. What could possibly be going through your mind at that point? Man, the only reason I remember things from the time that I got that call to the time that we got to the store is because Jones had to remind me <laughs> of how furious I was. I mean, the photos are really shocking. I mean, the whole thing, it's just literally cleared out. Yeah, that was crazy. Seeing that was crazy. Seeing the pictures of him and myself in the store empty almost a year from when we opened, when we basically put everything in here ourselves, just us two. I mean, you can see the shelves in the back, but we, you know, we put all this stuff up and to see people running in and taking things that we've worked hard to build over the past year. Yeah, it wasn't a good feeling at all. You know, you wrote in your Instagram post, this is the hardest thing you ever had to write. You're a private person. Everyone showed you so much love in the city and like that's why it hurt so much. How do you reconcile kind of your support for the protest, I suppose, on one end, if you do support the protest, and on the other hand, this is a really, really terrible outcome of what happened. To get all that love that we've gotten since it happened, it's been eye-opening to know that we've made somewhat of a mark on the city in the short time that we've been here, to the point where people reached out to us, getting letters with, like, checks and, like, with you know no uh no return address to to send it back the money is not the issue like i'm i'm looking for a way to get it back to them because it's it's not it's really not about the money the gesture was amazing but that feels good and the friends that we've made and the people we've built relationships with over the past year they showed up for us in in a big way man like we had people show up with food and flowers and drinks and just buying us lunch just like little gestures to let us know that hey you know like we support you guys that felt really good that part of the issue made me feel really good i don't think that the people that ran into my store and looted it were 
necessarily a part of the protest. They probably were just around the protest just because it was something to do, somewhere to be taking light away from people that are actually out there doing a the good work. What's your take on the entire world right now, or at least a lot of people in the U.S., but a lot of people increasingly around the world, you know, rallying around black-owned businesses as a, I don't want to call it a trend because it's not a trend, but it's just, there's probably never been a time in recent memory where the whole world has been posting, you know, hashtags about black-owned businesses and resources to help black-owned businesses. Do you think this is like a flash-in-the-pan thing that'll pass in a couple weeks and people, you know, will go back to usual programming or is this like have a lasting impact. It's been refreshingly eye-opening <laughs> to see people and businesses that don't necessarily stick their necks out, in a sense, come to the forefront and say what really shouldn't even be a controversial statement that Black lives do indeed matter and that these issues affect everyone. Yeah, and you have companies running the gamut from people who are just literally posting black squares to like Ben and Jerry's who are saying like, down with white supremacy, Go, like, here's my ice cream named, you know, like, <laughs> down with white supremacy. I mean, it's like the whole runs the whole gamut. Nah, for sure. And they um, just the acknowledgement, man, I think the acknowledgement goes further than people realize. I feel like it's not costing you anything to admit that or to say these things, you know what I mean? Like, it's not, I don't think so anyway, but You know, for whatever reason, they saw it as a risk before to where it doesn't seem like it's as much of one now. I think that the true test will be six months from now, whenever all this has subsided, if these companies are really backing up what they're saying with the things that they're doing. Kellen Daniel there from Sneaker Politics in Dallas. At Courier, we just launched the latest issue of the magazine. It's all about fresh starts as businesses and shops emerge from lockdowns and look to reopen safely and hopefully profitably. For the issue, we talked with dozens and dozens of small business owners all over the world to hear what they've been going through. Literally everyone from restaurant owners in Shanghai to composers in LA and dog trainers in London. One problem we ran into this issue, like all magazines out there, was photography. It was really hard to send photographers to go on shoots anywhere, given there was no traveling. So in the Courier Life section, we got Athens-based photographer Marco Aguello to photograph his wife, Stephanie Stoyanov, who runs a jewelry brand, Swim to the Moon. Marco also photographed our cover stars for the issue, the founders of the plant store Copria. Well, I caught up with Marco and Stephanie just a bit ago together to find out what's been going on. Everything's good. Things are back open and kind of back to life here. I wouldn't say normal, but they're definitely... You know, everyone's in the beaches, the restaurants are back open, bars are back open. It's kind of strange. It's like it never kind of happened, you know? You know, since we last caught up, I mean, that was, what, weeks ago, right? Probably like a month ago, maybe. Yeah, I think a month ago, for sure, yeah. Yeah, it was proper lockdown. We were talking about, you know, your, your jewelry brand and, and who's buying jewelry right now. Has that changed at all? Have, have you seen a lot more sales since then? No, actually, I have not. I feel like compared to last year, and I try not to look at those numbers, obviously, because this year is completely different with different circumstances, but it's not the same as last year. I mean, there have been orders coming in, but it's definitely, you know, a lot happening. I need to be more tuning into like going virtual and posting every day and then things happening in the States kind of threw everything off. So it's not only COVID and then it's just the whole matter that's happening right now in the States that is another added on huge difference, I think. Yeah. Has your day-to-day changed in terms of like 
obviously you guys can go outside now, walk around. I mean, you could before too, but you don't have to stay inside and be totally in lockdown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. You can go out every day. We don't have to send a message to the government anymore. You know, we can go out and eat. The casting studio is open, so that's great for me because all of the things that I made, I basically now I'm in production, so it's great. So I'm like about to release a new collection in August. So for me, it's been going really well. For me, yeah, I see my other friends that I follow on Instagram. They're still shooting editorials for summer and. You know, so in that sense, you know, people are back out and spending money, you know, on their lookbooks or whatever. And for me, uh, I thought I was kind of dead in the water because most of my work is travel related, let's say. But I've actually gotten, uh, you know, a few jobs here and there since people know Greece is open. So it hasn't been too bad, but I'm a little skeptical about the future just because the rest of the world can't travel. And a lot of, you know, travel magazines and people are pivoting or rethinking their strategy And just because they can't send people places to report on whatever food, travel, whatever that may be, you know. But overall, it's positive here, you know. Yeah. Has that made you, uh, Marco, like reevaluate how you work as a photographer then in terms of like how you approach magazines or newspapers and trying to get work, given that you can't quickly get on a Ryanair flight and go to Barcelona to do a shoot? Absolutely. I think I have made it a habit in the last year to pitch stories. And now more so within Greece, I'm going to try not to think about too much, you know, oh, when's my next job going to come and enjoy traveling in the islands, you know, with, with Stephanie or with friends, see where I can pitch photo essays on different Greek islands, you know, smaller ones. I mean, there's over like 200 islands focusing on that, doing personal photo essays and just keep working and keeping busy and just kind of uh, let things happen as they do. So I think for me, it's going to be nice to also just slow down. Keep shooting with, you know, more personal, let's say, and use that to maybe send to magazines. You know, what I love about you two is that, you know, Stephanie, we profiled you in Courier Life, this issue. It was shot by you, Marco. And also, Stephanie, you were the one who tipped us off to Copria, the beautiful plant star that we ended up featuring on the cover, which, Marco, you shot as well. So you guys are at the nexus of kind of this issue, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Those cover guys, Copria, Marco, what was that like, you know, shooting them? They're such a, you know fantastic little store i love both of them talking with them and um, they were just so excited to reopen it was a lot of fun i'd been in the store before and it's a great space you know it's small but like the way they've curated and put the plants and you know not only plants you know it's kind of a lifestyle they have different artists, uh, mag- artists and magazines and things that they you know decorate the store with so it was a lot of fun actually meeting both the owners because i follow them on instagram and you know i really like their aesthetic and the way they shoot stuff You know, it's not your mom's plant store, which is really, (laughs) really cool. So it's really nice. They're super casual. And to be honest, I didn't expect anyone there in the store. But when we when I was there shooting the feature as well as the cover, it was really busy. And again, it's a small store. So, you know, we'd be chatting and then, you know, they'd be helping customers. So it was kind of like this, like visiting some friends and then, you know, just kind of shooting in between. They've got really, really great plants. I mean, like things that you don't find in any other plant store. They have a really good eye of like choosing different plants. So I think that's what draws everyone there. You know, not just the owners. It's just, they, they're just aesthetically, it's just beautiful. Yeah, and I loved that they kept visiting the store during lockdown to water the plants. And they said they didn't have any casualties or, you know, any deaths from the plants 
over that period. Amazing. Yeah, they need to come over to our like, house. It's like their children, you know? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the the cover, it was fun, you know, because they're really outgoing people and really fun to hang out with. You know, all the bars were still closed. So a lot of the bars were doing takeout drinks, like delivery. So they're like, hey, do you want a drink? You know, after we wrapped so with the cover, I was like, yeah, sure. And, you know, some guy just pulled up with a on his Vespa and delivered, you know, a Negroni and a margarita and whatever else everyone wanted. It was a nice shoot. You know, it felt really comfortable. didn't feel awkward, you know. And Stephanie, when we caught up, you mentioned that you guys moved from the U.S. You know, you were looking to move somewhere with a good quality of life where you guys could be, you know, entrepreneurs and creatives. And Athens, obviously, given your family history, was a good place to go. You know, we're seeing a lot now, though, like a lot of people leaving these big cities because of COVID. People are leaving New York City for, you know, whatever, a bit more rural areas or second cities. Would you say Athens is a great place to move if you're leaving from, you know, New York City or London or L.A. or something like that? Yeah, for sure. Of course. I think it's perfect. I think it's still a big city, but yet very, very small. I can't really compare it to London or New York. I mean, those are, you know, massive metropolitan cities, but... The great thing about Athens is that you have both sides. You have the slow lifestyle and then you have, you know, the fast city paced, cars in your face, loud noises everywhere, fast moving. And it's just really great for people who want something different and want both worlds, basically. So yes, for sure, come to Athens. (laughs) Yeah, Greece is open and if you can, come visit. It's a big part of the economy. If you're still scared, there's plenty of islands where you don't have to be close to anyone so uh just do your research and they take the right safety precautions traveling so it's yeah. okay and yeah. then buy from small businesses don't ever stop doing that because they're in dire need right now to denmark now which is one of the first european countries to shut down restaurants and bars and shops when covid reared its head it was also one of the first ones to reopen Our contributor, Miriam Partington, profiled a few really interesting Copenhagen businesses in the latest issue to find out how they were reopening. Miriam's normally based in Berlin, but she was here to give us a bit of an update. They were very efficient, I think, with with closing things down, so they were able to contain the virus quite well. Lots of businesses there have been reopening slowly over the last couple of weeks, and some have even been starting from scratch, to be honest. So Atelier September, which is a vegetarian cafe, which is run by a guy called Frederick Bra. I chatted to him for the issue and he was speaking about how he's reopened his vegetarian cafe as well as some of his other restaurants that he owns within Copenhagen. But actually lockdown was an opportunity for him to rethink his business concept. I think he realised that customers wouldn't necessarily be okay with being in a very intimate setting indoors actually and with the summer coming he just thought okay instead of having like a sit-down cafe why don't we really try and pursue this takeout model so that people can just drop in pick up a nice vegetarian salad or some local eggs or whatever it is and then go and sit by the park so he's actually opened Atila September as a deli and farm shop now which is pretty cool I love that. So many restaurants and cafes have just become like larders and like you go there to pick up eggs and spring onions and stuff. And it's like, are they ever going to go back to being a restaurant? Who knows? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I I think it's quite nice because I think for Frederick, for example, it was really important to him to support his local producers. And so I think actually a lot of the restaurants and cafes in Copenhagen 
when it comes to their strategy going forward, they're basically thinking about how to stay relevant and connected to their local community. So it's been quite a dramatic turning from global to local, I suppose. I mean, you also interviewed Zara and Mia from Lille Bakery. And those guys, they're obviously a bakery and a cafe. They pivoted a bit during lockdown too, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So first of all, what they did was they opened up an online grocery store and they also started up this bike delivery service, which they managed to put into operation pretty much overnight, which was run by their friends and neighbors on a voluntary basis, which was pretty cool. But I think actually what they plan to do now is they, they want to keep the grocery store running because I think they realized how profitable this is, but also how much people like this idea of, you know, what you were saying about, about turning into a larder and uh, selling these local products. I think they want to kind of eventually phase out this delivery model because I think with Leela Bakery, they aren't in the city centre. They actually are located in like a tiny little suburb. So people actually have to travel out of the city over to Leela Bakery. So the idea is that they kind of convene there. And I think, you know, the feedback that they've got is customers actually just love like traveling to the bakery and spending an afternoon there, you know, chatting, working, whatever it is. So having this delivery model doesn't really match the core concept of their business, which is ultimately bringing people together in one place. I think they're looking forward to fully transitioning back to being a cafe. And finally this week, Elizabeth Haig is no stranger to Courier's pages or podcasts. She's a michelin star chef. She's the owner of the new restaurant May May in London's Borough Market. She's also our latest startup diarist in the new issue of the magazine. May May was beginning to thrive before the pandemic, but then had to shut down like everyone else. In the mag that's out now, Elizabeth wrote about the challenges she faced during lockdown, but things have even progressed since the issue came out. Namely, May May's open for business now. Elizabeth told us this about what's happened since then. Well, I think last time we spoke, we were just starting our produce and our e-commerce, so we started our online shop. That was going really well for, I think, about two months. Then we've seen a massive, significant drop-off in sales which was a bit worrying. But I really put it down to a lot of other places opening, plus a lot of places doing meal kits and switching to online e-commerce as well. There's just simply a lot more options for everyone. And so they're not spending as regularly on one particular item. We've got really good customer base and I'm really, really thankful for our regular customers who buy our produce. But we kind of thought that we need to kind of bring back May May so we did make the decision to reopen it. That was about two weeks ago. I bought one staff member off furlough, my second in command, basically. Mainly her main job is to keep me sane because the past few months I've been on my own. It's been really, really tough. As everyone knows, holding a business on your own is tough. The market never really closed down. And I noticed with the good weather and the places starting to open up and serve things, take away or out on the street, our fresco, we were just like... Well, we can provide that. We have a great takeaway service as well as we'd be contributing to the community as well. So we reopened and we were absolutely slammed in the first two weekends. It was really nice to see our regulars, people coming up to May May and ordering their, you know, straight away knowing exactly what they're wanting, which was just really nice to also feel like that people know what Singaporean and Malaysian food is now. So yeah, we, we were really, really happy for the past weekend and we're hoping for another 
big weekend this weekend as well but financially has it changed positively in any way I don't really I think it's too early to say yet we haven't made any significant losses or any significant gains I think the produce sales definitely helped us tide over you know made sure that we covered for any outstanding liabilities so we don't any any debt so I think that's a huge positive but in terms of now that staff are coming off furlough I think it's gonna be really hard to say whether you know, the company's, you know, financially in a positive position. I don't think any company can really say for certain that at this point. I think there's a lot of silver linings in a way because we've seen an opportunity with May May that we are doing a really great takeaway service as well as we, you know, customer facing. I'm there every day. So I get to really communicate and give that customer experience. We've been working really, really closely with our landlords at Borough Market and we saw a real opportunity to harness maybe doing evenings now at Maymay and we're just going to jump at it we're going to try and provide like a real sort of dining experience that's you know physically distant safe but also just fun I think a lot of places are closing down that everyone is sort of missing that experiential dining experience basically everyone's missing hospitality right so I think at May May, we will provide that. Patience, I have learned to really appreciate every aspect and learnt every aspect and managing every part of our company, as well as time management. I've learned that don't take for granted that extra hour or two. There's just always something to do, but don't forget about the good stuff. So take a time out, take a little break every now and then and take a breather and then re-attack it. I think I pushed myself quite hard over the past three months and I think we nearly burnt out a couple of times I think I mean I think that's good going but (laughs) we um definitely needed to reassess and take a step back and tackle things a bit more constructively rather than all attack 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 I think this whole pandemic and this whole closure has made me really appreciate every part that not only what our team does but what the customers and fan base really provide for Maymay as well we're really excited to reopen and if we can come out of this stronger then let's bring it on and that's it for this week's edition of the Curry Weekly Podcast as ever any questions or comments just shoot me an email at daniel at couriermedia.co I'm Daniel Giacopelli Curry Weekly is back again next week